My name is Peter Beinart. I am a non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. This is another installment of our podcast, Occupied Thoughts. I'm really thrilled to be joined today by the journalist uh, Nathan Thrall to talk about his really important um, uh, new essay in the New Review Books called A Day in the Life of Abed Salama. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for, for spending some time with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Peter. So this is really an extraordinary piece. I mean, uh, I've sent it to a lot of people uh, and basically just said, if you if you read one thing about um, about the occupation, about what it means in people's lives and how it came to be, just read this piece. It's long, but if you read it, you will come away with a really remarkably kind of holistic understanding. Um, and it's also a very powerful human story. So maybe you can just start by talking a little bit about how you came to, to know about this story and decide to tell it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing it. And thanks for, for saying that. Um, so um, there's kind of a, a micro uh, answer to how I came to write the piece and a macro answer. And um, and the, the macro answer is that I've been working at an NGO called the International Crisis Group, a conflict resolution organization uh, for approximately 10 years um, based in Jerusalem and overseeing a, a small team of analysts. And um, I came to the conclusion that um, change was not going to come about through the kind of work I was doing at the International Crisis Group, which is basically writing highly detailed uh, reports uh, filled with political analysis and interviews with um, top officials and their advisors. Um, these were read by policymakers, admired by policymakers, read by some journalists as well. And, um, and I became convinced that actually uh, that was not the most important work that needed to be done. And, and you know, a, a lot of the senior uh, officials in the Biden administration who are now in, in policy uh, making roles, uh, I know a number of them, and I know that they actually have a, a pretty good um, understanding of what's happening on the ground. They don't need a ton of uh, convincing by me uh, of, of what the, the real situation is. Um, however, uh, they have no incentive to do anything about it. And, and I don't think that they will do anything significant about it. Um, and the reason that they, they won't uh, is because uh, the incentive has to come from a strong political constituency in the United States that is demanding a change. And, and that strong political constituency just uh, doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist because the American people are... Um, largely ignorant of what's happening here uh, and, and uh, what a um, moral catastrophe it is and uh, the degree to which uh, they are uh, not just uh, complicit in it, uh, but partially responsible for it. Um, and I think that most Americans, and, and I, when I say most Americans, I also mean most uh, members of Congress, um, they're just simply simply ignorant and they would be uh, horrified if they actually knew what uh, they are um, responsible for, what they're complicit in, what they're paying for. And, um, and I concluded that the only way to really uh, uh, bring about change here was through changing public opinion of ordinary people 
and their, their representatives in, in Congress. And, um, and the way to do that is really to tell uh, human stories uh, that, that um, can be read by a lar large number of people and understood by a large number of people and, and really bring home uh, in an emotional way uh, what the, the reality is here that uh, Americans are helping to sustain. Um, so the macro uh, answer is that I decided to leave the International Crisis Group and stop trying to influence uh, an elite group of policymakers who I think actually don't need any convincing uh, and uh, switch to writing full-time and work on um, uh, bringing stories to uh, the public uh, so that they have a better understanding of, of what they're uh, supporting. And, and the, the micro answer uh, is, you know, I lived here at the time of the crash. I, I um, was actually working uh, at crisis group. I was on my way. It was the birthday of uh, one of our research assistants, Suher Freitag. Um, she was delayed by the crash. She and I were going to go do a number of interviews in Hebron that day. Um, and it was a horrific event and people uh, knew, uh, people, people who are here remember it. Um, maybe, but, maybe you want to step back for a second and just for people who are not familiar, just say what the crash. Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Yes. So, so my, my piece, um, it, it focuses on a tragic uh, uh, accident of a uh, school bus in the West Bank that was carrying um, a, a group of kids who were uh, from an enclave uh, that's surrounded on three sides by the separation barrier, the uh, 26 foot high concrete wall, and on a fourth side by a stretch of the Eastern Ring Road that has become known as the Apartheid Road because it has uh, segregated lanes for Israeli uh, and Palestinian traffic. And that road itself has a large wall uh, running down the middle of it. So that forms the fourth wall of this enclave. The enclave contains uh, both unannexed uh, territory, which is the most of the town of Anatta, uh, and it contains annexed uh, East Jerusalem, both within the same enclave. So roughly running down the middle of it is the dividing line of municipal Jerusalem. But all these people live together. They're parts of the same families. Some of them have uh, the green IDs of Palestinians in the, in the West Bank. Some of them have uh, blue IDs of Palestinians in uh, West Jerusalem, I'm sorry, in, of, of Jerusalem. Uh, and, um, and, and so the, the school that these kids attended was filled with students for, with both green IDs and blue IDs, ones who are ostensibly in the sovereign state of Israel within the annexed territory of Israel, others who are in the ostensibly temporary occupation. Um, and, uh, and so a, a tragic uh, event occurs with a crash with this uh, bus, and that's the kind of the center of the piece. And I um, explore all of the ways in which uh, history, uh, the history of this conflict shapes and informs um, one father's uh, search for his son on the day of that crash. Um, so just to return to what I was uh, saying before, people remember this event. It was a, a horrific event. And um, uh, more recently, I was about to write about uh, annexation because the annexation debate was uh, raging uh, in 2020. 
Uh, it appeared imminent that annexation uh, was going to happen in, in June or July, uh, or rather in July. And, um, and I found that the annexation debate was just totally at odds with uh, the reality on the ground. And there were people who were running around saying uh, that if Israel annexed even a square inch of territory, all of Israel would become an apartheid state as though Israel hadn't already annexed uh, territory in 1967. And, um, and there was this kind of notion that uh, there was a separate, you know, Israel within the Green Line or Israel within the Green Line plus annexed East Jerusalem uh, that was totally uh, separate and from the unannexed territory of the West Bank. But in fact, you know, there are all of these places that are, are totally orthogonal to our understanding of what's annexed and what's not. So there's territory beyond the separation wall that is officially annexed sovereign Israeli territory of East Jerusalem, but entirely neglected uh, by the state. There are parts of uh, Israel within its pre-1967 borders that are officially part of Israel that are also uh, neglected by the state. Uh, I'm talking about in particular uh, the most extreme cases, the uh, Bedouin communities in the Negev. And there are communities, uh, Israeli Jewish communities inside the West Bank that are not formally annexed, but are, you know, integral parts of the state of Israel and feel like they've been annexed a very long time ago. And so our whole discussion of, you know, the consequence of formal annexation, I felt was entirely misguided. And I began to look for uh, a human story that took place in one of these locations that would really illustrate how at odds our understanding of what is sovereign Israel and what isn't sovereign Israel is. Um, and uh, it was by looking in one of those places, one of these enclaves that's uh, formally part of uh, sovereign Israel, but on the other side of the separation wall that I uh, came across was reminded of the uh, story of, of the crash. And as I began to research it, it happened that uh, uh, the longtime babysitter of my uh, children, since my little middle daughter was an infant, uh, she's now six, um, and she's a you know, beloved uh, member of our family, basically. Um, she told me, you know, I have a relative, he's not a particularly close relative, uh, but his uh, son actually uh, uh, passed away in this crash and um, here's his phone number. So I, I reached out to him and uh, spoke to him and was very moved by, by his story. And, uh, and it's his story that is uh, at the center of the piece. So one of the things that I, I love about this piece is that it, it, it relentlessly focuses on reality on the ground for people who lack basic rights. And, and you know, you and I know that there is such a kind of massive industry in the United States, which is really always designed to turn the conversation to anything but that, you know, about to, to, to the language that people use when they talk about Israel, to the motives that they have when they criticize Israel, to the disproportionate focus they give to Israel, to, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? Always distract, always turning towards towards the things, really kind of abstractions and I think cul-de-sacs rather than, than, than the human. Um, and so, uh, I wonder if you could just give a few examples of 
what the human realities are like day to day for someone like Abed, who um, who just doesn't have basic rights vis-a-vis -vis the state that controls his life. Sure. Um, well, I mean, um, on the on the most uh, basic level, he lives. Uh, he moved uh, recently from the Anatta Shuafat uh, enclave to Ramallah, um, but. Uh, he lived in a, in a totally lawless area, part of which is officially sovereign Israel, part of it is uh, occupied West Bank. And, um, and much of that uh, area of Anatta, that's the unannexed part, is considered area B. So the West Bank is divided into uh, three um, uh, types, uh, three zones under Oslo. One is uh, area C, which is full Israeli security control and full Israeli administration. And that's uh, over 60% of the West Bank. Um, area B is full Israeli security control and um, Palestinian administration of health and education uh, and, and uh, other services. And, and area A is, is really the, the city centers, uh, which are ostensibly under Palestinian security control, but in reality, uh, Israel uh, enters them every day and arrests people at will. So much of Anatta is area B, but because uh, it's surrounded, you know, area A and B is about 165 islands inside a contiguous sea of area C. And so area B is ostensibly under Palestinian administration, but Israeli security control, but the PA to get to Anatta needs to cross through area C to get there. So they need Israeli permission to get to Anatta and arrest someone, for example. And uh, what that results in is that, you know, the, the level of, of control and even the supposedly Palestinian administered area is, is very limited. And it is not a place that um, Abed wanted to uh, raise his son. Um, he, you know, people in the same community, in the same enclave, uh, fall in love, but uh, they have uh, enormous problems if they want to uh, marry one another and live together. Um, because a, uh, a Palestinian with a green ID card is not allowed to enter uh, and next East Jerusalem. So can't uh, reside with um, uh, his partner in the annexed part of the enclave or anywhere else in uh, Israel or annexed uh, East Jerusalem. And, and his partner is fearful of leaving uh, annexed East Jerusalem because if, she, if, if Israeli authorities can prove that she has uh, left uh, and, and next East Jerusalem, even to a very a few blocks away, uh, they, uh, she's at risk of having her Jerusalem residency revoked, and then she won't be able to visit her relatives who live in, uh, in East Jerusalem. And just on, on the most mundane level of, of you know, uh, who you decide you, you, it's even possible to you know, think about having a relationship with, um, you know, that, that is uh, controlled uh, by this, this uh, system. I could give many other examples. Um, no, 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 that's, that's, um, that's, really, um, that's really helpful. Um, 
One of the things I wanted to ask about a little bit was, you know, you talked about um, the need to tell stories to try to educate Americans about um, about the, the, the really brutal reality that Palestinians face. And I wanted to ask you about something that I wrestle with as well, which is um, the, the question of the privilege that people like you and I have, right? Where I'm an American Jew, you were born, you know, American Jew who moved to, who moved to Israel. We have, a, we have enormous privileges in telling these stories, much easier in many ways for us to tell these stories than, than someone like Abed, who you wrote about, or Palestinians in general, you know, Edward Said, you know, decades ago wrote this famous essay about the, the, the lack of Palestinian permission to narrate. Um, and so I'm just interested, and this is something I wrestle with, I'm interested in how you wrestle with the desire to tell the story of of um, Palestinian humanity and Palestinian suffering while recognizing that often it's easier for someone like you or I to tell that story than it is for a Palestinian themselves? Uh, that's a very good question and I'm glad that you asked it. Um, it is indeed something that I, I grapple with. And, um, you know, it's, it's enormously complicated uh, on so many uh, different levels. So, First of all, um, you know, there is just the racism of the mainstream media. So the mainstream media is more likely to publish me than a Palestinian. So um, am I uh, a party to that system? Is, is it just the mainstream media's fault for being racist and I'm doing the best I can within the constraints of that system? Or am I profiting from this racist system and complicit in it. Um, the, uh, in addition, you know, by publishing me, there's only so much space for a story on Israel-Palestine. And, you know, it's a conflict that is becoming more and more peripheral and just fewer people are interested in it. And so, you know, I am a white Jewish American taking up space that uh, ought to be potentially could be taken up by a Palestinian speaking in his or her uh, own voice. And, you know, I could, you can take it to a, another level of complication, which is, you know, a, a good friend of mine, uh, who is my colleague at, at uh, Crisis Group, taught at Bocconi, you know, he, he said to me, uh, after the piece came out, not as a criticism of me, he, he really liked the, the piece, uh, but we were discussing it and he said something which has really stuck with me, which is he said, I'm so sick of having to perform tragedies in order to be humanized. Mm -hmm. And something that black Americans have, have been saying, have say very, very frequently as well. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, how do I handle that? Am, am I, am I playing into this kind of racist system in which uh, you know, Palestinians are only humanized through tragedy. So by, you know, writing about a tragedy in this way, in part to humanize Palestinians, and again, am I complicit in something uh, horrible? Uh, and I don't really have answers to all of these questions. They are definitely things that I think about. Um, and you know, it, it's obviously it's it's uh, painful to me if a Palestinian and I've have heard it that Palestinians offer these criticisms of me, uh, and, um, and and it makes me you know 
it obviously it's at odds with my perception of myself that I'm harming their cause. Uh, but it's a view that exists. Um, and I, I honestly don't know, you know, the best way to handle it. I'm, I'm trying my best to handle it with sensitivity, but I don't think I really have, have the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's something I wrestled with as well. Um, uh, um, I wanted to go to something you said earlier, and that's about your theory of change, you know, um, uh, which I found in a certain way actually kind of hopeful. Um, uh, and, and perhaps one might even, if one wanted to be critical, say innocent in the sense that you seem to be suggesting that, that the problem is that Americans and, and members of Congress don't know that they're ignorant. Um, and that if they saw what, hap what, what the reality was, that would change the political reality. But there's another alternative, right? More for members of Congress than for ordinary Americans, which is that, well, first of all, which is that, you know, foreign policy is an elite driven business. So except when America's at war, in general, the public's influence is not gonna be that significant. And from, and members of Congress are not ignorant by accident, right? Um, the, um, there's a political cost to not being ignorant. Um, uh, and, um, and, and politicians are, most politicians are, are, are shrewd enough to recognize that, right? So, yeah. um, so you can spoon feed them a, an extraordinary essay like yours and they'll say, no, thank you very much. I know that this is just gonna get me in trouble. Um, so I'm just wondering how you think through that. Yes, so I, I agree with the distinction you're making between members of Congress and ordinary people. Uh, and, and, you know, Definitely, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, but with ordinary people, and this is really meant to get beyond uh, members of Congress, I, I do think that an ordinary American is will be shocked uh, by what they read in this piece, um, and is probably pretty ignorant actually of the degree to which even America is uh, uh, complicit in it. And, and, and I think that, you know, a normal person would read this article and put it down and at least it would, it would be within the realm of possibility that they would write to their representative and say, why are we paying for this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right, right. Um, I want to pick up on something else you said. You, you said that you feel like this conflict is becoming more peripheral. Um, and, and I certainly think that's 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 right. You know, you just look at the Biden administration; it's it's mm -hmm. it's nowhere near the kind of on the priority list in terms diplom diplomatically that that we saw with some previous administrations. There's a there's a I think inevitable you know shift of American foreign policy towards Asia in in general. Um, and um, I, it makes me wonder about where you, what you think the future may bring. One of the things that I, many things I admire about your analysis is you have the capacity, which I think is difficult for progressives to actually distinguish the, the descriptive from the normative, from, from distinguish what you would like to see happen from what you think actually is happening. Um, and, uh, you know, Barack Obama as a, you know, a, a classic progressive always said essentially, you know, to, to the Israelis, you can't get away with this stuff, right? We live in a post-colonial world, um, but it's not so clear we live in a post-colonial world. Um, uh, anymore, um, or that we live in a world in which the mark, you know, the arch of history is making things like Israeli policy in the West Bank unsustainable or even amorphous. Um, uh, uh, and so I wonder if I'm not talking about just what happened in the Israeli election, I'm talking in a more macro sense. What do you think are the different scenarios that might guide, you know, where we are 10 years from now? Mm -hmm. uh, 
if you don't mind, I'll go even more macro than, than 10 years. Um, right. 50 years, whatever. Yeah. So, so I want to say uh, a couple of things on this. You know, one is um, I think that there's a lot of focus in our discourse on Israel-Palestine about solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, are you for one state? Are you for two states? You know, the real problem is that we proposed two states without sufficient confederal ideas within it. Um, you know, there's a, there's a just an endless stream of op-eds about why we don't have Israeli-Palestinian peace because of some factor that was neglected uh, in the past. And um, my view is there is no solution on the horizon. There is no one state on the horizon. There is no two states on the horizon. There is no confederation on the horizon. What's on the horizon is the present. The present of horrible ethnic domination. And and that is uh, what I foresee for much more than 10 years into the future. And, And the moment that we're in, I do think is unique in one respect, which is that Um, today that's almost a point of consensus. Um, You know, the International Crisis Group and the Center for New American Security both put out uh, papers timed for the incoming Biden administration at the end of last year. I believe Brookings did as well, you know, uh, and and figures from, you know, uh, members of the current Biden administration all the way to Trump's ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. All of these people are saying in one form or another the same thing, which is there is no uh, solution to this conflict in the foreseeable future. So, I mean, what that means is we're no longer in a place where um, America's support for uh, this system of racial oppression is um, can be justified by the claim that it's about to end or you know, yes, we're supporting it now because, you know, John Kerry is about to reach a peace agreement or now Joe Biden is about to reach a peace agreement and actually this horrible thing is about to to come to an end and our aid is actually helping to leverage bringing about that end. That rationale just doesn't exist anymore. So now we're in a situation where we all agree it's for the coming decades. I think we can all agree that it's a horrible uh, reality um, and, and so what is our uh, justification for continuing to support it? And I don't think it exists. And, and I think that is a real uh, opportunity. But to go back to your uh, question about the, the very macro going beyond 10 years, I remember going to um, uh, conferences of Palestinian intellectuals organized by Masarat um, years ago and hearing debates about whether our model is South Africa or Algeria. Um, Which one is the appropriate model for Palestinian liberation? And basically the, you know, your preferred outcome dictated which uh, historical analogy you wanted to use. So those who wanted to see a one state outcome would talk about South Africa where it did end in a a single state with uh, equality for all and um, or equal voting rights for all, I should say. Um, And and the two-staters were largely referring to Algeria, 
where you had a withdrawal of uh, the colonists. Um, and so, you know, for me, I think that there is another historical analogy that's neglected in all of this analysis. And that's America, that's Australia, that's New Zealand. And if I were to look at a, uh, uh, at a graph, you know, looking at Israeli, you know, land acquisition over time, you know, the trend is very clear. The, the, the model that we're closest to is America and New Zealand and Australia, meaning total success for the settlers. Um, and, uh, and, you know, if I, I think that's the, the safest prediction of, of, of what will happen. Now you can say, well, in, in those cases, you know, smallpox er eradicated huge numbers of the native population. And so then it was whittled down to such a small size that you could then integrate uh, what was left of the native population. Uh, but, you know, uh, Israel has all the time in the world right now. The, the, there is no reason that Israel has to make a decision imminently. And who knows what future wars will bring, what future economic incentives will bring. The population ratios can change a great deal. I, I do think that it's important to say that one of the things that makes this place unique is that unlike in America and Australia, what you can't really imagine here is a day in which Israel has achieved such victory that it's able to offer full equality in individual and collective rights for the native population uh, because that is perceived by a significant amount of Israeli Jews, a significant number of Israeli Jews uh, as a form of assimilation. And basically it would be to create an Israeli identity, an Israeli national identity, which doesn't exist now. It's not recognized by the state of Israel. There's no Israeli nationality. There's a Jewish nationality and there's an Arab nationality. And, uh, and to create an Israeli nationality that would subsume all people within the territory under Israel's control would be essentially viewed by many as an act of collective assimilation. You know, what, you know, Zionism made all of these achievements and we've sacrificed so much in order to basically obliterate our connection to worldwide Jewry and create a new nation that's now in a, in a literal ethnic and blood sense severed from, from the rest of the Jewish people. That's not what Zionism set out to do. Um, so, so I do think that's a, a different, uh, aspect of, of this conflict. So I, as, as you acknowledge, you know, the, the difference, the, you know, there, there, I guess two kinds of differences between this and the settler colonialism of the United States, Australia, you know, one is, as you say, that those, those states were paved by mass extermination, um, yeah. Um, and so you had, as you say, such a small population that you could afford to give them voting rights because they, they didn't have any power. Um, yeah. uh, and, and, and also, you know, it, it took place in a world that was, you know, perhaps easier to get away with that than it is today, although I suppose that's debatable. But it seems to me, um, I wonder whether what is 
lurking underneath what you're saying is not the idea of 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 kind of America, Australia, New Zealand, South extermination, but another populate mass population transfer, um, which would as you you know which would change the the numbers in such a way that would would um, would would kind of change the calculus. I wonder. Obviously, people talk about kind of small scale population transfers that happen, you know, on a kind of daily basis. Um, yes. As Palestinians kind of, you know, are, lose their residence rights in East in Jerusalem, let's say, because they've not been there for a few years. But I wonder what you think the pro possibilities of that are, and I'm particularly interested in what you think would you talk about a war? It seems to me what you think the, the some of the dynamics might be if we saw another mass Palestinian uprising, another another intifada, full mm -hmm. scale. Um, so I, I certainly think you know the 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 two you know major wars that uh, took place in in mandatory Palestine, the forty eight war and the sixty seven war. Uh, you know, uh, the, both of those involved uh, mass uh, expulsion and and, uh, and and population uh, transfer and refusal to allow refugees to return. Um, so, um, uh, you know, if there's another war, could that happen a third time? It seems to me entirely plausible. Um, and again, as you say, there there are the kind of daily incentives. Um, there's, you know. Just people want opportunities for their children, and people go and they study abroad, and they don't come back. Um, so, so, so I, I think it's entirely possible that we would have uh, more uh, population transfer in the future. Hmm. Um, and what about what about the you know the more hopeful possibility, which is you know that that there is a mass Palestinian movement that uh, Israel can't put down. Oh, sorry, I didn't answer the second part of your question. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that maybe does, is able to capture the imagination of the world. Since part of the reason I think that the situation is becoming more peripheral is because it's not on the front page because Palestinians are managing their own, their own occupation. I just, I wonder what you think about that, that possibility, the one that many, you know, many of us hope for. Yes, yes. Um, I believe that that outcome is, you know, at some point inevitable. I mean, that, that there will be some kind of uh, Palestinian uprising again. Uh, I think, you know, you just can't, can't do this to millions of people without them uh, fighting back, even when it's hopeless. Um, so, so, so I think that, you know, it, it's not, doesn't appear to be imminent, but uh, I do, I, I just count on human nature being that if, if you have to swallow this, this much uh, that, that you will uh, eventually uh, do something about it. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, I, I, I don't have much optimism about uh, how much success that, that would have. Um, first of all, I think that, you know, the more effective form of resistance is requires a lot of collective action, as you saw in the first Intifada, whereas the second, the violent one, was, uh, did, had much less collective action. It did it in the very first stages it did, but, but later it didn't. And Wendy Perlman you know, wrote a book about you know, why this is the case and why, uh, in fact, you know, uh, real collective action requires a lot of political cohesion. 
and, and that certainly doesn't exist today. So that's another obstacle to seeing the more effective kind of Palestinian resistance that we saw in the first Intifada. Um, but even if we had that, I'm not optimistic that that's going to result in you know, a resolution of the conflict. I do think that it's very likely to result in new concessions from Israel. Uh, there's a long history of seeing, seeing Israeli concessions. And, you know, I, I wrote a book documenting how every single Israeli withdrawal was preceded by uh, uh, some uh, form of pressure, whether it was diplomatic or violent or a popular uprising. Um, and, and so I do think that you can have a proliferation of new, you know, unilateral withdrawal plans where Israel, you know, moves, you know, certain settlements uh, that are east of the barrier, you know, closer to the barrier, and you can have, you know, certain kinds of redeployments and, in, uh, you know, moves toward unilaterally implementing something like the Trump plan on the ground as a result of an uprising. But obviously, you know, th that plan is not a resolution of the conflict, and it won't end the conflict, but it can, it could maybe uh, uh, end an intifada. Yeah, and I think I should I should say just to make it clear that, that when I I think when I certainly think about the kind of popular organized uprising that that I would hope to see it would be a nonviolent uprising which would which was speaking in the language of freedom and even in the language of of the language of equality and and, and reaching out to Israeli Jews as uh, you know in in the way that other great kind of moral movements have have done in the United States in South Africa and elsewhere. Yes. Um, I guess I wanted to ask just the last question I wanted to ask is just a, a more personal question. You know, you, you talked about this this conflict becoming more peripheral. Um, I think that you know I'm I'm curious about what drives you to stay focused on it. Um, I think that you know in a way for 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 folks who are who are on the right in in the Jewish world uh, maybe a little bit more more tribal in some ways, maybe the answers are, are more clear. Um, but I think the challenge that, that progressive Jews inherently face is um, why this and not so many other terrible things that happen in the world? Why not climate change? Why not, you know, why not Xinjiang? Why, you know, um, uh, this, as you say, is, um, is a horrible, um, uh, as you say, moral catastrophe, but it's also a fairly small scale one. Um, um, and um, so uh, I wonder what it is that, um, that draws you to it and leads you to focus on, so much on it, even though you're very, very clearly pessimistic about the possibilities of us actually seeing genuine justice and, and freedom for yeah. Palestine. So, so I think there are two, two basic uh, elements. One is I live here and I'm seeing it every day. And uh, I just, I can't, uh, I can't not do something about it, uh, seeing it. Um, I want to, I want to, I want to hear about the others, but, but I mean, it's just many, many Israelis also live where you live and yes. don't see it, right? Um, yes. So that's a choice that you've made. Yes. Yeah, I no, I could live in a bubble in Tel Aviv and pretend that it doesn't exist. And the state of Israel is extremely successful at uh, creating an environment for the majority of its citizens where there, you know, there is no occupation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, it's a choice that, that I've made to, you know, it's my career, it's, it's my, what I've been focused on with my life. Um, 
I, yes, I, I, so I guess that leads then to the, the second question, which is, you know, I'm not, I don't feel personally responsible for Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm horrified by Xinjiang, but, but I'm not uh, uh, responsible to the degree that I am here. We Americans are uh, very responsible for what's happening here. We are supporting it in, in many different ways, not just with military aid, uh, not just with financial aid. And I'm not even counting you know, the billions that we give to Egypt and Jordan, which are also about uh, helping Israel uh, or the uh, millions given to the PA. Uh, uh, but but uh, you know we're offering diplomatic protection. We're vetoing in in the UN, and and we're setting a narrative in the world where you know allying with the the world's uh, so superpower, um, you know is is facilitated by cozying up uh, to the Israeli regime. Um, so so as an American, I feel uh, deeply responsible. We spend more than half you know, of our foreign military financing on Israel. That means Israel gets more in foreign military financing than the rest of the world combined. So our responsibility is enormous. And in addition, of course, the American Jewish community you know, is a huge part of the American support uh, for, for Israel. I mean, that, that when every you know, US official tells you that uh, Israel-Palestine is a domestic politics issue, not a foreign policy issue, that's what they mean. Um, so, so there again, you know, that the responsibility is, is enormous. You know, that this, this moral catastrophe is one that I'm, I'm personally responsible for. Um, well, I, I really hope people will 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 read the essay. Um, uh, my only fear is that the people who need to read it most will be the will be those who are most resistant to. But um, who knows? You know, maybe, I share your fear. Um, but uh, the the more widely it gets out, um, the better. It's an extraordinary. It's really an extraordinary piece of storytelling. Um, the essay in the New York Review Books is called "A Day in the Life of Abed Salama." Uh, Nathan, thanks so much for being with me. Thanks for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure.